Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is, well, I'm not, we're going to put this out when the paperback comes out, I think. Um, that's what we talked about. Uh, what, what, I'm here with Ocean Vuong, who's the author of On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, um, and books of poetry as well. Um, you're also a MacArthur Genius Grant winner, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, um, when, when is the paperback coming out? Uh, I think June first. June first. So we'll we'll have this out sometime around then. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you. I I read your book when it came out, and I was very moved by it. And uh, you know, I thought that um, I don't know. It brought up a lot of questions in my own mind about like you know my own writing and things that I have tried to do in the past. So um, I don't know. Like just a sort of start out. Um, you know. Like you started out as a poet and then you went out and you wrote a novel. Uh, what was, why, why'd you make that transition? Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me and, and for talking. It's a deep pleasure, um, to, to have more Asian American platforms and to partake in it. So thank you for, for having this podcast and more so for having it. Um, I, I think as an artist, I've always, I was always worried that I would get too comfortable, um, in any form. And after working on poems for a decade, I started to notice that I, I found the easy way out of the poems. When things start getting hot in the kitchen, I would escape out the window. And I got really good at closing the poems that I was writing. Um, not like making good poems, but got, got good at ending them before the, the difficult questions came. And I think the novel forces you, I think like podcasting, to have a long form, elongated, endurance um, effort at following through. And so the question is, you know, what happens to Asian American bodies after one scene moves to another? How are these bodies tended to? How do they feed themselves, relieve themselves? How do they move through the temporal linearity of the world? Um, and, and poems allowed me a way out of that, whereas the novel forced me to, to focus on uh, these bodies further. So that was a challenge that I didn't expect to really complete. Now, you know, I, I told myself, I'll just try it every day, and one day if it doesn't work, I'll just, you know, put it away, and nobody would know that I'm a failed novelist. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you, I mean, in some of the interviews that I read that you had done, you talked about uh, just sort of this idea of like, what is an immigrant novel? And in this, uh, you know, in this interview you did with the LA Times, you said, uh, many critics would say this is an immigrant story and a gay story, maybe something about working class. But a writer is so much more than that. No wonder we would bomb children because we were a species that would torture an animal. Oh, I'm sorry, that's from a different part. But, you know, but, but a writer is so much more than that, right? Um, did you did you struggle with this question of what is an immigrant novel? Like, what it, what is a gay novel? Like, were, were these thoughts that you had while writing this? No, no. I, I think if you write under the mantle of a label or a category, you've already lost so much of yourself. You know, I think I tell my students this. My, my students ask the same question. Like, how much of, of these categories do I put myself, do I write under? And I say, well, how many are there? You know, if you let, if you let the world decide, they might des- decide that you only have two. 
Right. But of course, we know that we are much more. We might have categories we have yet to discover. What about a dog lover? What about a, a lover of mixed martial arts, which I am? Um, you Who's know, your favorite fighter? Leora Machida. Ah, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. I learned a lot of um, my writing techniques from watching Machida and Anderson Silva fight. Oh, um, wow. It, it, wow. Their strategies adhere to what um, Lao Tzu in the ancient Chinese texts call um, Wu Wei, which is sure. allowing the river to flow. And, and so I saw that their, their, their practice was actually akin to jazz musicians collaborating with the body of the opponent. Um, the other strategy is to go out and quote unquote yang it to, to force the occasion and power through. And that works to a certain degree, like Ronda Rousey, until skill sets catches up. Um, right. The, did you the watch art. the Chandler fight this past weekend? Yes, did I did. Yeah. That, yeah. that felt like what you were just talking about, where he was yanking yang Absolutely. It. He's a yang he's, fighter. He's, he's yang so fighter. strong, you know. You can and, do that until your strength goes away. You know, right. uh, Wandele Silva is like that as well. You can be a windmill going forward until your strength dissolves. But the reason why Silva and Machida was able to have success so late in their ages is that they they use a collaborative effect and similarly you know to answer your question in a very roundabout way you know i don't sit down just to write uh, an immigrant story or a gay story i sit down to answer questions that are important to me and i collaborate with those questions and wherever the novel takes me i kind of go forward right you you don't try to force it you create the flow um, and in the same way as mixed martial arts, the most successful ones, um, is how I, I tried to write. Okay. Well, I mean, like, I, I think that's interesting because, you know, you mentioned your students as well. And, you know, I it's something that I wanted to talk to you about, you know, at some length because I read that quote and I was struck by it because I think that there are ways in which people will say, okay, this is a working class story, right? This is about the people who are working class Asian Americans or working class Vietnamese Americans who we never hear from, right? And I think that a lot of the reviews focused on that and that I find that like uh, when trying to survey the way in which, and you know, I hear from young writers who write to me and ask me questions about how to do journalism or they talk to me or they'll, you know, I'll do a panel or something that and they'll come up and ask me about it. And I'm th- 41 years old and I've always been struck by how much more this younger generation actually imposes it upon themselves to be immigrants and to be, you know, Asian American writers in a way that I didn't really think about when I was coming up because, you know, whatever, like it, it, that language didn't, it existed, but it certainly had not sort of come to me. Um, like, wh- what do you think about that? Like, do you, do you think there is something that is going on where like young, young people or young writers, especially perhaps young artists are thinking about themselves in terms of these identities more? Yeah, I think it goes down to the question of representation, that key word. And I think my, my wariness of that word is that it's very focused on optics, right? To represent is to showcase. Um, and it's very orient on the, the, the stage, the metaphor- metaphorical stage, who is represented and uh, who is being represented. And it has this uh, um, obsession with uh, the on-screen effects or the name on the book cover. I'm more interested in Asian-American presence 
because when we think about presence, we have to now think about presence behind the screen, in the executive offices, editorial positions. In in other words, structural presence. Um, and I think an over, uh, you know, reliance on representation can fall into this checkboxing. Um, you know, this cover all our bases. Let's get let's get one of each. And we saw a lot of that um, in the '90s through multiculturalism. Right. And and I think there's a danger of regressing into that area if we don't have Asian American presence across the board. Um, and technology has, in a way, made it possible for that to happen. I mean, you have your own podcast. People are making their own films, starting their own publications. Um, and so it's hopeful. I think I, I kind of arrived at the in the middle of these two generations. When I started writing in 2007, I came to New York, and a lot of my elders, um, Asian American elders, in their at that time in their 40s and 50s, uh, would talk about talk very proudly, very even even smugly, um, that their work was not um, noticeably Asian American, and that they have now achieved um, the moniker of being merely a writer and not an Asian American writer as if it was an achievement. And I think to be fair to them, you know, coming out of the 90s where we were only allowed to have one of each, one Asian American poet, maybe one man, one woman, right? You would say maybe perhaps Marilyn Chin and Lee Young Lee. Um, And then that was it, right? Um, Being being able to write non-diasporic, non-cultural work without cultural markers seems like a freeing, a sort of successful moment. But I think it's still on its way in the middle of a dialectic. We haven't arrived because what I heard from these writers was that Asian cultural um, relics were very important to their lives, but they refused to write about it because they did not want to be perceived from the white audience as being exotic. So it was not so much a total freedom as a uh, sort of oppositional subordination. It's still beholden to the white gaze. It's just refusing its expectation. And I think what I hope to move from, from, from that point is to have Asian American writers write whatever is important to them and kind of turn their back on the expectations of the white gaze. In other words, what if the mango was not just an exotic marker, but was now reseen? as a mango in all of its history, it's all of its angles and dimensions and all of its uses and purposes for Asian American people. And so in other words, you know, having a bad rendition of a subject does not mean that subject is exhausted. It only means we have to really go back and re-see and rethink. And that's why I use the moniker of the butterfly. The butterfly is seen as a stereotypical Asian symbol, right? Uh, representation of our stereotypical softness, being merely decorous, right? Fluttering willy-nilly, aimlessly. And through research, I, I wanted to show that the butterfly, through its migration, is actually an incredibly powerful, steely, and courageous species that has to die five times to give itself a future. I I mean I I think that you know like what you're talking about is um 
Yeah, it's it's an interest. Like I, I don't know. I'm interested in that thought where it's just like, well, what do we do? I think about my own work. It's just like I'm not gonna. I get very resentful when uh, I'm a magazine writer and every assignment, every time something happens to Asians, five editors email me. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, every assignment I get from the magazine that I work for is about Asian people for the past few years, and it used to not be. You know, I've been writing there for eleven years, and um, and I, you know, I I get mad about it, and I'm just like, well. Are you, you know, am I the the person that fills in this box for you? You know, and uh, am I like <laughs> I have other interests? You know, I don't need to write about every single Asian thing that happens. Um, and yet, of course, like that's also where if I'm asked to write something without an assignment or something like that, that's where I gravitate towards. And I think that that's sort of the strange. I don't know. I don't think it's a dated neurosis or a dated type of <clears throat> internal conflict for people at this point. I think it's still very real, you know, and I, I don't know. I guess I just think that, uh, I don't know, it, it's just a very hard out, you know, to figure out how are you going to do this without sort of tearing yourself apart about it? You know, like, how are you going to wonder, how are you going to be okay with it when it seems like this is actually a sort of closed box, right? Like, you're yeah. always going to be like, looking at yourself again and being disappointed, <laughs> being disappointed that you failed um, or that you're doing this for X reason. And then the next day you wake up and you're like, well, I didn't do it for that X reason. You know, I did it for my reason. But then the next day you're like, actually, let me think about that again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when the six Asian women were massacred in Atlanta, all of a sudden, you know, my inbox blew up with, you know, TV channels, radio news to come on and speak about it. My book sales, according to my agent went up, you know, um, every, you know, lists, reading lists were, was propagated. And, you know, all of a sudden, um, there was an uptick in relevance, quote unquote, and it broke my heart. And I, I, I couldn't agree to any of those invitations because it meant literally going on something, getting a check because six Asian women were murdered. And it, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking thing for an Asian creative when you are most relevant when your people die. And so I, I couldn't, I was immobilized. I couldn't speak. I couldn't do anything after that. And I, I, could, I didn't want to say anything that I already said before. I said, everything I said about this, I said before six women died. Right. So I'm not going to repeat it on CNN just because it's hot and fresh and you want to have a PR, a visible PR moment to see that you're woke. And I'm not, then all of a sudden, I'm one more pawn among many. Right, so it, right. It's, that, it's that, that moment where you have to know when to say no to the world in order to say yes to yourself. And that moment will never leave, you know, because that's, that's the key of being the other is that people have expectations and often those expectations are limiting. They expect you to write only about that about what you are with no other ability there's a demand to be an ethnographer a bridge to those people rather than a maker and a creator and a mind and i think this is true you know with early reviews of tony morrison for example when reviewers praising bluest eye said morrison could write very well as a recorder of black life but when will she mature and write about white folks, right? As if it was ever her desire to do so. But right. to, to call a novelist, a woman with an incredible imagination, 
a recorder, like a camera, is to wipe away all of her agency, all of her personhood as an artist, even while you praise her. No, I, I think that is analogous, right? Because it is essentially saying that um, it is a sort of trap of authenticity through representation, where the same people who email me and email you to go on these shows, right, are saying, we kind of need somebody with a fancy byline or something like that to come on and just say the things that the five things that we expect them to say, even though I imagine that you and I, maybe we disagree about some of these things, but I think that we would probably both disagree with whoever the producer is, who's making these calls, you know? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you just think, well, should I do it so that the person who ends up doing it is not worse? But, you know, I don't know. I've always found that that's not my concern. You know, like, I don't feel like I have uh, responsible for the utterances of my people, you know, nor do I necessarily believe that such a people <laughs> exist. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, so then like I found, you know, about 15 years ago, I started writing a novel and, um, I found that halfway through it, that I was totally paralyzed by these types of questions, you know? And my thought was just that I was going to write a funny novel with a lot of, uh, you know, like a murder mystery type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was also about like the Virginia Tech shooting, right? Um, and uh, I don't know, I never got over it. And um, I, I'm always, you know, reading your book, it seemed like that you had somehow, you know, one of the things that struck me about is that you seem to have gotten through that process. So I was just, you know, curious how you mm. had done it. Because I imagine you went through it, right? Like you yeah. thought about it. Yeah. Well, I think it helps being a poet um, because right away, you know, our friends, my friends joke and say, if you're a poet, you're, you're writing as if you're dead because no one's going to read you. And so there's a certain freedom. It's like, Oh, I'm just shouting into the void, into the forest by myself. I'll just say whatever I want. And I, I kind of, you know, did that as a poet and as a novel, I thought this is just going to fall into a black hole and I'll go right back to writing poems. You know, in my, uh, when I was selling the book and meeting publishers, I started to see the editorial gaze that I had to dodge and refuse. You know, and often it was, well, you got five subjects in here. You got to pick one. And I say, that's not how the world works. That's not how I think. I'm not going to amputate my interest to satisfy a quota that makes a book more marketable to you. Your team has to catch up. And if you don't, then we're not a good fit. And luckily, I went with somebody who really saw everything, you know, um, about the book and respected it. But it was an uphill battle. You know, I had to go through those meetings and I saw a lot of, I saw how, you know, if you're not prepared in those rooms, a lot of young novelists could be edited into a neat box or edited into a corner. Um, But by then, you know, I've been at this for over a decade. I was already a professor. You know, I knew how to TED Talk my way out of certain whole, you know, corners. Um, but I saw that happen. And, and you know, on, on another uh, level, it's, if you, re- if you read widely and deeply in Asian American literature, the, the breath, although spotty, you know, is already there. If we think of Carlos Bulosan, you know, immigrant poverty, Filipino voice in the 1950s. If you think of H.D. Siang, a modernist in 1929, writing his novel, Hanging of Union Square, a, sat, a satirical, humorous novel that Penguin right. just re-released. 
you know, uh, in the middle of the stock market crisis and right before the Great Depression. Like we were there. Um, and so when I look at, you know, Teresa Hakyung Cha's novel with photos, uh, you know, uh, artifacts and archival uh, research, broken lines of poetry, this avant-garde, sort of a kaleidoscopic, fragmented debris of a novel published, you know, two weeks before, two weeks after she was raped and murdered in New York City. Um, our elders has already laid out the tools. And when I, by the time I wrote On Earth, it is actually quite tame compared to what we've achieved uh, in the past, you know, 200 years of Asian American contribution to the literary American landscape. Uh, and so I didn't feel uh, trapped because I knew where my constellations were. I knew there were North stars out there. They might be dim, but I knew it. they were wild and they gave me permission to do whatever the hell I wanted. So I think that with the training and obscurity of a poet, I, I really had none of that over my shoulder. I just said whatever I wanted, thinking who's gonna read this anyway, right? Were you surprised by the uh, um, success of the book? I still am. And to be honest, it's one thing I can't really answer. I don't know why. You know, my heroes were esoteric. None of my heroes were bestsellers. You know, Marguerite Duras, Bono Capil, you know, really, really strange books that, that don't follow the rules of successful um, marketable fiction. No plot, no fray tags, inverted you know, check mark of, of development, no climax and de decrescendo. Um, so I'm, I'm as baffled as anyone else, um, uh, but, you know, I, it's hopeful that it means that other people can kind of keep pushing the form forward. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't know why books are successful or not successful, so we don't have to speculate on that. Or, you know, honestly, I don't, you know, I, I find it to be a less interesting conversation than, um, you know, what's actually in the book. Now, I don't know, like uh, there, you, you have this line on in the book where you say the impossibility of you and you being the narrator's mother, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this book, for those who have not read it or are listening to the show, is a letter from a son to a mother. Um, the impossibility of you reading this is all that makes my telling it possible, right? And the implication there is that the mother cannot actually read um uh um can you can you just tell me about that like what the freedom in that was for you because uh you know i had read some interviews that you had done i had read some of you know biographical you know or uh, i guess like articles and it seems like you know like this there are parts of every book like this that are fictionalized there are parts that are memoir but this does seem to also be your situation, right? Or was your situation? Like, can, can you talk about that? Um, what writing this book was like for you? Yeah, I think if I, I, I could have never really written a true memoir. Um, I think I don't think I ever will. I'm too interested in invention and using the imagination to propel something um, that is crafted. So, from which is what I did in my poems, um, to take autobiographical context, context, uh, which is about ten percent uh, of the book, and then animate it with the imagination. And I told myself that if at the end of this book it looks so too much like my life, so close that I know it, I wouldn't publish it. Mm -hmm. And so all the people 
have the same context. It's almost like writing a simulation, a parallel universe. Um, so it ha it's very, very different, but it's recognizable. And I, I like that recognizability because the stakes are high. You know, I, I think when you write autobiographically, uh, particularly in fiction, you can animate the trajectory of these characters, but you have to respect them in ways that you've respected or uh, misseen those around you. You're challenged to see better. Um, they're not just, you know, complete figments of the imagination. You owe them a thorough and responsible ethical gaze. So I, I like that challenge uh, about it. Um, but yeah, it was the framing of a son writing to a mother was important to me because it was one Asian American speaking to another. And anybody who has to read that is now an eavesdropper, a secondary you know, agent in this conversation. Right. And to have a monologue, a 245-page monologue from an Asian American voice it seemed so powerful to me. You know, to me, it seemed radical to have a nonstop voice that's filled up space. We're often not seen as, as folks who fill up space. And I wanted the book to be, in its entirety, a conversation between two Asian American people. And anyone who's participating in that will have to kind of sneak in, be on the outside, looking in beyond the, 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 the threshold of the doorway, listening into a conversation between a mother and a child. Do you do you think uh, do you think you accomplished that? Like, do you think that it is because that that's always a question, and I don't mean it in terms of the quality of the book. I just mm -hmm. mean, do you think it is possible to write a book in English? And you know, at growing up as we did here in the United States, and uh, you know, being sort of always surrounded by the white gaze to free yourself from it. It's hard just to answer. Um... Because part of me says it's possible, but then another part of me, maybe a wiser part of me says, who are you kidding, Ocean? Yeah. Right, I, you know, I wrote a profile, Stephen Young, right? And this mm -hmm. is mostly what Stephen and I talked about, um, whether or not it was possible to actually not, you know, and whether it was a worthwhile exercise. And I don't have any feelings about it because, you know, I, I actually don't know the answer myself. I've been thinking about it probably for like 25 years. Um, and I just, you know, I don't know. I, I was curious about it because, yeah. um, or how you felt about it. I basically ask everybody who's worked, like who's Asian It's a very important question. question. Yeah. It's a very important question. And I would look to the black artists who have been asking this question much longer than we have right. in the American space. And if you look at Toni Morrison again, she says, I know that somebody in France will end up reading my books if my books are successful. I also know, you know I'm paraphrasing, her, that the majority of people who buy novels in America are middle-class white folks. Right. If you break down uh, you know, any best-selling book, that's the case. However, she says, my intention when I sit down is to write for and to directly young black women, period. And I think she says, you know, in the same way that Tolstoy never imagined a black girl in Ohio would read him. Um, I don't imagine these writers, but I know that they would exist. I don't imagine these readers, but they exist. But I cannot corrupt my intention by having them look over my shoulder. And I tell my students the same thing. I said, look, 
when you sit down to write, you're moving towards a horizon. And your horizons are limitless in that your questions are inexhaustible. And if your questions are good and they're potent, you'll start moving towards them as you write. And you realize that they're much bigger than the concerns of whiteness. Whiteness is actually so small, right? For example, in On Earth, one of my central questions was, what is the use of joy in the aftermath of obliteration? Right. That is the real, every Vietnamese refugee has asked that question and answered that in thousands of ways that have been manifested in this country. But I wanted to ask that of this specific group of people in this novel. So when I'm asking that, when I'm sitting down and trying to answer that question, how white people look at that is an afterthought at best, right? It's like, I don't got time for that, <laughs> right? It's, and so I think when you really follow that question, you know, when you enter a room to work, your elders follow you in, your parents, your sisters, your brothers, your heroes follow you in, the people you look up to, yourself, the worst versions of yourself, the most critical, follow you in. And your projection of what readership is or what whiteness is, any gaze follows. But as you start writing, as you start really going forward towards that horizon, they walk out. They can't sustain it. One at a time, they start walking out. And if you're really, really honest with yourself, even you start to walk out. And it's just a consciousness asking that question. And for me, it's almost like a fever dream. What are the uses of joy in the aftermath of obliteration? And when, when your questions are that important to you and that large, regardless of how white people see or missee you, it seems so minuscule, so small compared to what you're working on. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that the key is to locate what that question is, you know, for people. And um, even if the question is essentially, well, what do I do about this white gaze? And there's a way to sort of talk about it. And, you know, this is similar to what we try and do on this podcast. And, you know, I don't know, probably I fail at doing it in my own writing, but you know, there's a way to sort of talk about that without being so concerned about, about how it's being processed, because that seems like such a, strange place, but I, I don't know. I, 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 <clears throat> I want like, I bet, I guess being a poet at that point must be helpful, right? Like you, you mentioned that before where it's just like, uh, there's sort of a freedom there, but, um, because, because you don't really have to project a huge audience because it's, it's poetry. Um, uh, let's see the, I wanted I wanted to talk to you about this. Uh, sort of, you did this interview, and you said that you talked about Buddhism, and you said for Buddhists, the root of all suffering is desire itself. I accept the fact that I'm not a monk; that my life is too often dictated by even the most basic desires—a job, a house for my mother, so and so's new book, a man's body, quiet, open spaces. What I find nearly impossible to accept, however, is being both a Buddhist and a poet at the same time. What, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's so much of, of well, Buddhism, I think, actually, is actually sometimes uh, antithetical to everything I do. 
despite being a Buddhist. Um, you know, my abbot at, at, at the temple I go to outside of Hartford would say that, you know, creating a story of your life, creating stories in general, uh, looking back at memory and revising it in any way is creating and infusing an ego. And that now we, be, we become shackled by the personhood or the persona that we create out of our lives and that we should really just live from moment to moment. And I think that's why you don't see, um, at least I haven't seen any practicing monks who are novelists. <laughs> you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh writes poems, but they're, they're you know, poems that kind of have the, the wisdom of his uh, talks, right, in, in a different form. Um, but I think, so in that sense, I've kind of accepted that I'm not the best Buddhist as a novelist. Um, I've kind of made peace with that. I'm kind of like a hobbling Buddhist. Um, and I hope that maybe in a future life, uh, I could let go of the work of a writer and enter the monastery. Um, but I would need much more merit and I would have to do much more work to achieve that rebirth. Um, so do you agree with the abbot at your at the at your uh, at the monastery that you go to or at the temple you go to? Do you agree that the act of writing is antithetical, especially writing one's story is antithetical to to uh, you know that that it does introduce the ego that it that it is that it is that it is introducing suffering? Well, I don't know if it introduces suffering, but it prolongs enlightenment. Right. Right. Um, so I don't think I suffer from my work. I don't. I don't believe in that sort of like suffering artist right. mythos. But I think I do agree with him in that it creates a sense of self from the past, and then that self now limits the future. Right. So for example, it's like I I was this kind of person based on the things I experienced, and now I'm always this kind of person. And in in some ways, Buddhism is kind of um, have different theories on trauma and even therapy, where it's like if you fall into this idea that you are a victim, for example, based on the word um, and based on you know how you attach yourself to a series of events. There could have been many events, good and bad, in your life, but you start to create a narrative of victimhood, then you start to live as a victim in the present and the future, and you lock yourself into a lane rather than be expansive and be more open towards healing. Um, there's a lot of debate about this. and uh, But from right now, I think I would be a much more advanced Buddhist. I would have much more, um, I think, stronger wisdoms if I lived more in the present and less in the past. Yeah, I only ask this because this was the central question that I was obsessed with from the ages of 19 to about 23, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is there a way to attain enlightenment while also being a writer. And um, I read Gary Snyder. You mentioned him in this interview that you did. I read all the sort of Buddhist <laughs> poets in America who wrote about trees and chopping down things and you know, like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the smell of the wood afterwards. I mean, what, what, do you think that, uh, and I don't know, I, and I always just sort of concluded that that in itself is like a form of ego right? Like sort of making these beautiful, very pristine and extremely precious moments. Um, even if everything in, else in your life is sort of 
place uh, is, I don't know. I, what do you think about that? Like, I, I just wanted to have this conversation with you because I've actually not met many people who have thought about this too. Um, but I would, you know, I, I would sit there, I would meditate, I would think about this. And the only thing I would try and do is trick myself into believing that it was okay to pursue being a writer. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the, the example, you know, writers like Snyder and Merwin, you know, a lot of them had had idealized versions of what Buddhism was right. and idealized versions of Eastern Asian writers like Basha, the, the haiku masters, yeah. many of whom were practicing monks. Um, and, and so they had this idealized version. And so they kind of appropriate a lot of the styles, but it's out of the context, two, two different political systems, two different social economic uh, timelines, right? A lot of the work uh, that they were inspired by were written in the 17th century. And they were writing in the same way in the 50s and, and 60s when there was so much more happening in America than you know fir trees and Mountain Dew, right? And, and spring mist. Um, yeah. And so it felt fraudulent. It, it, you know, we're often in the civil rights, you know, during civil rights, during assassinations of huge uh, uh, political leaders and civil unrest, you know, it's, it seems incredibly pretentious to just, you know, write about the beauty of nature. Um, and so a lot of that, I think, was sort of misguided um, in, inspiration from Buddhism. Um, but if you look at Basho, for example, he writes about, you know, often what the, the troubles in Japan, how dangerous it was. He writes about the helmets of lost soldiers with crickets singing inside them, right? And so it, it's kind of, it, we see this often again with Pound, what Pound brought over, um, you know, faulty translations of Chinese poets and uh, uh, influenced modernism. And when we study modernism now, we think that Pound and Wallace Stevens and William Carlos Williams invented imagism but it was already done, you know, 400 years before um, in Japan and northern China. Um, so I think for them, you know, it's always important to have a critical eye on how these things are carried. Um, and a lot of my biggest trouble with how white Americans have often engaged with Buddhism is a total disregard for the practice itself, the ceremonies, right? Often if I go, you know, it's, it's very often you go to uh, a zendo, uh, you know, led by uh, a white practitioner, um, an older white practitioner, and he'll say something like, you know, here's where you can get all of Buddhism without the trappings of incense and drums, right? Meanwhile, these are thousands of, every, if you study Buddhism, you realize all of these motions are part of the meditation. Yeah. Bowing your head, lighting the incense, it's all training the intention, it's all part of it. But this sort of removing it is in the same way the appropriation we see of yoga, right? Turning this, this ancient Vedic, you know, practice into, uh, you know, this, this, um, this thing you do down the street um, to, to get fit. And all of it's fine, but we have to always kind of remember uh, where things are coming from and kind of keep those practices alive because they're more than just keeping cultures alive. These are knowledge. This is knowledge of a people that have been brought forth and edited on for thousands of years. It's almost like Wikipedia. Um, and so to take the trappings out of it um, is, is quite silly. And I think the same way with, with certain quote-unquote Buddhist writers. You know, they, 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 they mimic 
like the hallmark version of, of some of these poets. Meanwhile, they kind of fail the moment of their actual contemporaneous world, which is much more violent and right, perhaps right. robust. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a denial of, I mean, it, it seems like for those writers and that, look, I think that Snyder has written some good poems and I generally admire him as a person, but I, I agree with your sort of, uh, criticism him or, or at least your assessment of his work but um you know it seems to be to uh reject the world right and which is not what any of this was ever about or the poems that they are taking from are ever about like the the pound poem the one that's he the very famous one and who's uh name i cannot remember it ends with like if you're coming down through the narrows of the river kyang i'll come to meet you as mm-hmm. far as Chofusa, right? Like yep. that is a that is about like a political moment, right? And yet it is interpreted, I think, by uh, people in the West as being, you know, this sort of poem about longing, right? Yeah. Which yeah. which is all which it also is, right? Yeah. But it is about sort of the cessation of longing, right? right. Because uh, and then you follow that up with like some sort of translation of a you know third hand translation of a long way poem or something like that that yeah. is about an image, right? And then. Uh, and then you have this sort of beautiful collection of detached <laughs> ideas, right? And about attachment and detachment. Um, and then you start to see Asian American thinking as apolitical. Right, 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 exactly. And then you feel, and then you want, uh, you want everything that you associate with Asian Americans to also be apolitical and pretty and uh, detached from from any sort of you want it to be like an object that you can put on your shelf or like a painting that you can put on your wall. Right? It becomes um, a, a relief from the political. And I think and then Asian American bodies are expected to be relief from the political. And this is just as, as the other side, it's just the other side of the same coin as how black bodies are seen, hyper-politicized, seen as dangerous, threatening, right? And then Asian American bodies as accommodating, opening the door having this after you effect and being a relief. And that's why there's this sort of stunned shock and contempt when Asian Americans have political moments and actions and thought. It's almost as if, wait a minute, the person opening my door now has an opinion about this world and this land. And there's this sort of stunned moment. And I've seen this in audiences. I've seen this you know, as traveling as a novelist where it's almost like, how dare you have a political opinion? I thought you were just going to tell me how how much you suffered. Do you think that there is a way that um, immigrant stories also get turned into that type of object? I guess that's the other thing I think about quite a bit because you yeah. know I, I just finished a book and the book first chapter of the book is just basically about I uh, how are different ways that I can tell the story of about my family's life in America? You know, and one of them I can say that. Uh, that they are refugees from North Korea who f- went down to the South. They came to the United States. Um, and for a period of time, we lived in a very famous housing project in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? And I can tell it that way, or I can tell it in the way in which, you know, the reason why we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts is because my father was studying at Harvard, you know, and I can tell it from a middle-class perspective. Mm-hmm. I can tell it from saying, oh, well, you know, the whole thing here is just about me and white people. You know, um, what was my, and that would probably be the most popular version of it. Mm-hmm. Yet I, you know, the reason why I started the book that way, and I'm not saying that this is a good method or a bad method. I'm sure that people, you know, make their own decision on it, but it's, you know, I, 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 
I feel like there is this way in which immigrant stories are written that uh, is sort of preset, you know, that, that it has reached a point of um, that, that it has reached this point of fetishization, right. That, um, and that it's about the struggle and, you know, it's about these sort of arresting scenes. And I, I think that what struck me about your book or your novel was that you have those scenes, you know, but it doesn't feel like uh, a prepackaged thing, right? It doesn't feel like you are doing this in the service of, of making an immigrant story. And so, yeah, Thank can you just talk that. about that for a second? Thank you for saying that. I think, yes, I think this is kind of what I talked about earlier about uh, writers not wanting to write anything Asian, quote unquote. Asian writers not wanting to be seen as Asian on the page. And that that fear kind of forces them. Like, it's fine if it's really their interest, right? If you want to write about just Mars and that's your interest, power to you. But what I've heard from a few of my elders were, you know, I'm not going to let white folks pin me down. So I'm not going to write about my family, the food I love, you know, my language. And I, I saw that as a great deficiency, as a great sadness. I grieved that. And so my approach is to write those things if they are important to me, which is what white writers always got to do. They just write things that were important to them. And I wanted the same autonomy that Mark Twain and Jonathan Franzen has, which is to write about the, their world. And... I did not want to kind of limit or sanitize or censor myself from that. But I also did not want to put those high dramatic immigrant moments on a pedestal as if to say, ta-da, here it is. Right. And so I kind of had an egalitarian approach in that those moments come side by side, moments of deep joy, moments of deep boredom, right, mundanity you know, cleaning up a nail salon, the chemicals used, right? The, and then right, right after, you know, moments of great humor, you know, when, when the mother uh, thought, you know, a client's uh, uh, a horse that died was her dog. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, so these moments, and I think I learned this from a, a Chinese-American um, poet, Arthur Z. In Z's work, any page you open it, there's PVC pipes, there's the, the cacti of the New Mexico landscape that he lives in, ravines, taco trucks, the I Ching him and his wife throws to decide you know, when to move from one house to another. So what you see is a, a, a sort of egalitarian spread of the detritus of life and that none of it is being picked up and saying, here's the immigrant moment for you, right, whoever you are. Right. And so he doesn't prioritize. And the author, fetishization often begins with the author. And if you refuse that, you, you can code and you can actually teach a reader how to read your work better. And I, I hope that was what I was what, trying to do in honor. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are parts of the book that are very funny. You know, like, so for the, my, I think the part that I found the funniest is the, is the reaction to Tiger Woods. You know, and uh, for those who've not read the book, you might be surprised to learn that Tiger Woods is extensively discussed in in this book, right? Um, and uh, you know, like uh, I don't know, like I, I don't want to just ask you like a lame question, but I 
like, you know, like why, why Tiger Woods? But, you know, cause I think the answer to that is quite clear. Cause it's a question of how does he identify, you know, and how is he dealing with, um, how is he dealing with sort of us imperialism? How is he dealing with the war that his father fought in, you know, and that his father's best friend, uh, you know, eventually died and around the same time that he was born. But yeah, like what, what, what drew you to this? Cause it was unexpected. You know, like when I, after I did not know you, I did not, uh, when I started reading this book, when it came out and I don't know you now, but like, you know, I had just read a review and I was, you know, I did not expect to see Tiger Woods in there. Like what, what about it? What, what about him interested you? Well, Tiger Woods is just kind of the quintessential, um, athlete in America that's both worshipped but only on the terms of the predominantly white media, right? So it, like most athletes, they are revered through the white gaze and that actually becomes a kind of shackle. It, it starts to limit them and, and we see this in how Woods wants to claim through a portmanteau, I'm Cablin Asian, I'm, I'm more you know, and I don't think he expected anyone to kind of, any journalist to kind of take that on forever. But it was his moment to say, I'm not just somebody hitting holes into, hitting balls into holes here. I have roots and I want to create a, a word where all my roots and the people are important to me are held. Um, and, and, you know, his father being a veteran uh, and giving birth to his life because of that, meeting his mother in Thailand, is ver- mirrors Little Dog's mother in the book. You know, it, mm-hmm. both of them are products of war. And so Woods is so interesting because as we clap for him, as we champion his his phenomenal, you know, uber-human success, he is hyper-visible. And yet his history and the fact that he is a product of a war that killed 3 million Vietnamese people is completely forgotten and lost. And I think only in America where, where that could be achieved, uh, someone could be totally seen and totally erased at the same time. And that phenomenon was so interesting to me. And I needed you know, to have Wood's life as, an, as a counterbalance to Rose's life who is also a product of war, but has no say in how she moves through the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it brought me to this, you know, thinking of, I don't know, it returned me to thinking about him when he started making those comments about Kabbalah Nation, right? And there was a response that you're like, no, you're black, you know? And yeah. uh, if you walk down the street, people think that you're black and uh, you'll be treated as a black man in America and that's what's relevant. And you making this thing is cute, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, you're black. And that came from everyone, you know, yeah. like that came from white sports writers, that came from black sports writers, it came from cultural commentators. And um, I remember thinking at the time, it was just like, it must be so strange for him, you know, to, who probably grew up, his entire life was spent playing golf, right? Like uh, he is not somebody who, you know, had many life experiences outside of playing golf, right? But that in this moment where he is trying to talk about these things for the first time in this way that might be clumsy, mm-hmm. that he's immediately shut down, right? And then you think about, well, why are why is that part shut down, right? Like, why why is it always about Earl, you know, the father? Mm-hmm. Why is it why is it never about the mother? Why why is the conversation about Earl always just, well, you know, he loves his son and is 
wants to believe in American dream or something like that, right? Like, why is it not, you know, everything that made myth. Earl interesting? Yeah. Yeah. It fits yeah. the myth. Absolutely. The, you know, we're a country that has this, this grand myth of the father taking the son under his wing, going fishing. I mean, there's so many novels. I mean, Ernest Hemingway made a whole life out of that, uh, that, that motif. And, and so it fits this convenient desire for the country, the fatherland, the, a land of forefathers, right? Um, to have this quintessential relationship. And it was impossible. I, w- I would say that the media not only couldn't do it, they, they, they did not have the capacity to present the mother as a person with agency and a person that influenced Woods greatly. And that's what he tried to do. He tried to honor her. She was there. She was always right. there on the green. You know, she, he tried to honor her by saying, by literally pointing, right, and saying that that also happened, by the way. Uh, but again, you know, we are not a country that manages complexity very well. And we rarely know how to celebrate complexity. And so it, it was, you know, championing Woods was dependent on reducing Woods. And the sadness is that it actually hinders Black identity as well as Asian American identity, because those things often mix, especially out of the Vietnamese diaspora. Right. You know, there are folks in Vietnam now, Vietnamese people who look just like Tiger Woods with Vietnamese lives, um, and and you know they are no less black than anybody else in America. Um, but you know, having this sort of forced uh, identification actually limits those scopes, and and. I hope that, you know, my book, one of the things it hopes to try to investigate is mixed race identity having no place to land. So when you have no place to land that is safe, you have to make safety. And that is ultimately what these characters are forced to do. They have to make their own safety. Right, right. And with, uh, you know, with with Little Dog in the book and with... um the mother character in the book and with Tiger Woods, right? There seems to be this, I don't know, I guess when somebody is assumed to be like a, the product of war, right? When a human being is assumed to be the product of like uh, of a multiracial relationship during a war. And, you know, you see this in Korea as well. You see in Vietnam um, that the wife, the mother is always seen as completely uh, inconvenient and not really a human being, right? They're just, they're not really even a presence. It is assumed that they have no thoughts, that that they have no influence in the lives of their kids. Like Anderson Pock, uh, you know, the musician raised by a Korean mother and really identifies as Korean. And it's been interesting to see him sort of try and fight that narrative as well, right? Like he, he talks about it quite a bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, uh, I found that to be very gratifying to read in the book because i think that um you know that's sort of what the larger conversation is like right why why do we why is it a shame of what happened during the war is it a shame of the war itself you know is a shame of the father's actions right uh to to sort of have these relationships and assume that those relationships could not possibly involve anything resembling love you know like that that sort of seems to be at least what's the backstory of it yeah, we see the same with Yoko Ono, right? And, right. and her son, Sean Lennon. And, you know, John Lennon always said that 
Yoko Ono had a major part in writing Imagine. And only recently, I think only two years ago, uh, they finally acknowledged, you know, and, and gave her, you know, whatever, a piece of metal for it. Um, you know, and, and wait, wait, long overdue, you know, and, and I think part of the mythos of her being the sort of, you know, the, the destroyer of the Beatles is, again, convenient to this, this succubus, mysterious woman from the East with long black hair dressed in black, this witch destroyed, you know, the Western society's most prized cultural relic. Right. Meanwhile, the Beatles were already on their way out way before, you know, they met each other. Um, but again, it's that, it's that stripping away the agency of this dark force. Uh, meanwhile, this is woman is an artist way before Lenin stepped into her world. And she continued to be an artist way after. Um, and and it's, it took so long for her to kind of finally be acknowledged and still not thoroughly so. Um, I, I just have two more questions and then I think we're going to, our time is going to be up. The first one is, you know, and you don't have to answer it. It's just a question that I thought about while reading up on you and reading the book. It's like, do you, do you think that, 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 um, I don't know. Do you think there will come a time in your life where you, where you stop writing because of your falling of Buddhism? I think so. I've already kind of foresee it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a Buddhist first and a writer after always. Okay. Yeah. That's I've, um, again, this, this, uh, time in my life was earlier, you know, like 20 years ago, but mm. I always feel like the need to return to it at some point, you know? And I think that the problem that I had was just that, I don't mean this turned into a therapy session for me, yeah, but you know, yeah. I, this is what our podcast is like. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like I, uh, I don't know. It was, I could not, resolve that central contradiction ever. And so then I just forgot about it, you know, and then yeah. I was like, well, I'll just try and be a successful writer. Um, and, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I, I'm always curious when I meet writers who are, who also are thinking about these things because I want to know how they resolve that contradiction as well. And mostly I think that a lot of them are doing the thing that you talked about, right. Um, the very pretty like sort of set of ornaments that they have. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. It seems like you're, interest in it is is a little more serious um so yeah do you you foresee like sort of an end to this and and sort of a, a uh sort of path towards enlightenment if i if i have a successful life i anticipate um a deeper engagement in 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 the practice of buddhism and that would require uh, a cessation of writing yeah one of my heroes annie dillard was one of the only writers this is about 12 years ago now where you know she perfectly healthy writing well and she just said i want to talk to npr and she hopped on to npr and she says i'm retired i'm done <laughs> <laughs> and i there was this big piece oh she's gonna have a new book and and, and she just says i'm one day I, I went to my desk i looked down at what i wrote the other day and i said oh i have nothing i don't want to finish this sentence and walked away and i just said wow goals Goal. I want to. I want to be that, like that when I grow up. Um, and so I don't know when that day will come, but that's one of my ambitions. Yeah, I feel myself edging towards it, but um, I don't know. Then I, you know, worry about what I will do to pay bills and stuff like that. You know, but yeah, I, must... I guess it's easier for me because I think I don't see a career as a writer. As a writer, I don't. I don't. I never saw it that way. I wrote two books. I'm proud of them. Maybe there'll be another, maybe there won't be. 
but I always see my, my practice, my career as a teacher. And that oh, I can okay. do. That I can do for as long as I can. Okay. Yeah, that was it. Uh, actually, that's the last question that I wanted to ask you, unless you want to talk more about MMA. <laughs> so who's your, fi- who, who's your favorite current fighter? Oh, I like Max Holloway. Holloway okay. is what I call active yin, right? right. He, he, he's actually researching, but he moves. And I think that might be the answer to MMA going forward. Is, is, because Machida, he, he's too slow in the first round, and he, uh, that comes and hurts him later on if he goes to the scorecards. But Holloway could pepper you while, while getting some strikes in, but he's doing very, very careful research. Um, and he'll turn it on once he's got your timing down in the second or third round. Um, and I think he, I think he won the Arlovsky rematch. Um, oh yeah, yeah, me too. Me yeah, too. yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, he had that fantastic moment that you're talking about in the last round of his last fight, where he is staring at the, uh, he's staring at uh, the announcers, and I think it was like, I think it was Daniel Cormier and Joe Rogan yeah, at that point, yeah. and he's like, I'm the best boxer. Yeah, yeah. And then he's <laughs> he's slipping the punches while not looking at them. Yeah. You know, it's just like this amazing thing, and. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, only I like after him he too. did all the research, right? So right, he right. That he doesn't right. do that in round one. So <laughs> right. he's like, so that's a beautiful example of active Wu Wei, where it's like he's he's researching, but he's actively moving. And another one who does that well is Dustin Poirier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he might be too old at this point, or maybe he's just been in too many fights. He just looks too kind many of wars. ragged, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. My favorite guy is Cejudo, but you know, he is certainly not what you were talking. Cejudo is just like, I watch, it's just like, I don't, I mean, he's retired now, but hopefully yeah. he'll come back and fight. Well, he had Fiorino more, he had something. more um, success when he did, did a more relaxed stance. He did a Machida right. stance, a karate style, right? Because when he ran out and tried to take people down, he got defeated by Demetrius Johnson within two right. rounds. Right. But right. when he's more, when he adapted a different approach, all of a sudden his success came from a more Wu Wei approach. But through like the fastest, most violent actions. Yeah. yeah. I just like, I see him and I was just like, I just, you're so fast. You know, yeah. it is a, it is a level of athleticism that I guess is still jaw dropping to me where, um, you know, and, and there's so much muscle memory with him where it's like, uh, you know, he it's knows amazing. exactly how to get, you know, obviously the master of this is Khabib, but like, yeah. uh, you know, but I think Khabib is also just five times stronger than everybody. Yeah. With Cejudo, it's sort of like, all right, you did this and, you know, I'm going to do this and now you're done, you know, yeah. and it, 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 he seems to just be able to do that so effortlessly. And I, I hope, know, he, I comes hope he comes back. I fight. hope he comes back. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I don't, I don't know if he can beat, I don't know if he can beat Figueroa, but um, it would yeah. be an amazing fight to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, I, yeah, on that note, uh, thanks for coming on, Mitt. Um, congratulations with the paperback coming out. And um, we're going to, yeah, the listeners will, you know, by the time this comes out, they'll have the ability to go out and pick it up if they don't have the book already. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a deep honor. Um, okay, thanks. All right.